Lord, on Sunday mornings, it's often a, a panic to get to church. And if it's not a panic, there's always thoughts in our heads about what's coming up and what we're going to be doing next and maybe what's happening this afternoon or tonight or even tomorrow. Our heads are always full of thoughts. We live in that kind of world today where we're always planning and thinking and seem to be preoccupied in so many ways. Lord, I'm asking and saying this out loud on behalf of this whole congregation this morning that you can calm our minds, put aside our tiredness and our busyness and our fretful thoughts and our activities just for a little bit as we come before you, especially now to hear your word and as we move from that into your communion. Help us, Lord, to really truly hear your spirit speak to us today and and to be moved in such a way that we are ourselves transformed by your spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I've said many times from the pulpit here that um, there's something I, I, I've always liked doing, and it was uh, acting and, and uh, being in that kind of business at one time at, uh, early in my uh, teen years. Uh, I went to Ryerson College uh, to do some investigation about going into radio and television. Um, that didn't happen. I always maintained, and a friend of mine who is in radio, we joke all the time that I've got the perfect face for radio, and that's uh, something he and I share. But I have a quote from uh, an actress, Nicole Kidman in particular, and I wanted to read that to start this out. She says, I love acting, but I don't like all the other stuff associated with it. The interest in celebrities, the press, the Internet, when your identity becomes mixed up in the way people are perceiving you. And that's one of the problems of being famous in general, not just necessarily an actor. I want to ask if you recognize any of these particular names. Owen D. Young, Pierre Laval, Hugh S. Johnson, James F. Burns, Harlow Curtis. Well, in a way, we all should because according to Time magazine, these are all people who have been designated as man of the year by time itself, indicating that they had the greatest impact in the year of all persons in the year they were active in, on the entire earth. But they easily get forgotten. The celebrity of today is often forgotten tomorrow. His initials were WW, and in the 1930s and 1940s, they were enough to identify him as to most of the world, certainly America and Canada and Europe. He was widely considered the creator of the modern gossip writing, and in his heyday, this rude, abrasive, egotistical, and witty man was the country's best-known and widely-read journalist and one of its most influential. In 1943, when there were 140 million people in the United States, more than 50 million of them read his gossip column every day in more than 1,000 newspapers, including his flagship, the New York Daily Mirror. Even more people listened to his weekly radio broadcast. Hated, feared, and revered, he presided over the Table 50 of the Stork Club in New York, creating and destroying celebrities the drop of his trademark gray snap-brim fedora. And yet when he died in 1972 at age 74, he was practically forgotten. Only two people attended his funeral, his daughter, Walda, and the rabbi who officiated at his service. 
today, not many people under the age of 40 or maybe even 50 even know the name Walter Winchell. A celebrity is a person, I'm quoting Fred Allen here, an actor, a celebrity is a person who works hard all his life to become known and then wears dark glasses to avoid being recognized. Off, off script a little bit here, Don and I watched a movie last night made in 1954, and it's uh, uh, basically it's a story of a, a young girl who had some extra money that she's been saving up and decides one day, and of course remember it's 1954, this is before YouTube and the internet and all that jazz, she sees a sign in downtown New York that's blank, it's up for rent, and she decides She's going to take her money and she's going to uh, have her name painted in this great big sign on Columbus Circle down downtown Manhattan. And she becomes famous through this. An ad company wants that sign space and so they cut a deal with her. And now she doesn't have one sign, she's got six. And from the six she gets twelve. And from the twelve signs she ends up on television. And from television she ends up in an ad campaign. She's done nothing. She's just famous. People want to know her name. And as the story moves on, she too realizes fame is not everything it's meant to be. I don't like being famous anymore. Have you ever met anybody famous? Someone that maybe you've seen on television or a sports personality or a politician? We've all met or come close to meeting some people, I suppose, over the years. There is truly something special about some of these people. They call it star appeal, maybe. There's other phrases, but it's something about that person that seems bigger than life about them. They're born leaders, sometimes, is the phrase we use. There's just something unique about them. Um, I know uh, in, in the business world, if you're tall as a man, you're tall and, and you have a deep voice and all that sort of stuff, you tend to be management material as opposed to a shorter person who talks kind of like this, maybe. Maybe he's not going to make it so well, you know. It is kind of the way it works, unfortunately. There's something different about certain people. Even that shorter person with that higher-pitched voice, there can still be something unique about them that pushes them to the top. There have been a few times over the years that we do run into these people, and there seems to be something about it. There's a glow about them when you see that person, and this quality translates often to the big screen or it gets into politics or they become famous just because they are. You can't really see the glow particularly, but you can sense it. I did a funeral just recently for um, a gentleman here that was here, held here at the church, and one of the things they described him as when he came into the room, he came into the room. Like everybody knew his presence was there. And there is always, it seems, somebody that's like that, isn't there? We've all run into people like that. And they're nice enough. It's not that they're kind of annoying by any means, but they just, they're larger than life in some way. They're different than that average person. In a sense, they've been transfigured into something more than just that average person on the street that you wouldn't notice. But they didn't start out that way often, especially when we think about movie stars. And we're obsessed in the day and age in which we live, and Walter Winchell is probably one of the ones that started this whole thing. We like to look at pictures of stars before they were stars. 
And if you look at them, there's something different often. They don't look anything like they do today. It's almost like they've been manufactured to look a certain way. When they first start out, they look more or less like the rest of us, just another person in the crowd. But they seem to have gone through some kind of change. And they're stars now. They're famous now. They're public speakers now. They've been transfigured in a manner of speaking, different from what we've read in the Bible. But the analogy, I believe, is very similar. And that brings me to that word transfigure. The dictionary says that transfigure means to give a new and typically exalted or spiritual appearance to transform outwardly and usually for the better. To alter the outward appearance of, transform, to exalt, glorify. There's a marked change in the form or appearance, a metamorphosis. And it's certainly true when it comes to these famous people that we can think of. But it's particularly true when we think of these three characters that we've read today. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. The presence of Moses and Elijah when Jesus is on the mountain praying is very important in this transfiguration story. And in particular, the transfiguration that takes place in Jesus. Moses is there for a reason. Elijah is there for a reason. Moses is a figure that reminds us of the past, the Exodus event, and the communal responsibility to teach the statutes and ordinances given to him at Horeb or at Mount Sinai. The story that we read in Genesis, Moses went before the presence of God, came down and gave them the law, and off they went through the Exodus process into the Promised Land, something that happened in the past, and eventually Moses died. Elijah's presence, on the other hand, represents things to come because he's the prophet who will one day turn people's hearts back to the covenant, as it says in Scripture. And therefore, Elijah represents the end times of the future because Elijah vanished. He didn't die the same way Moses did. He disappeared. So those two characters represent the beginning and the end. And they've come to speak to Jesus something special and pull that whole business together. The past, Jesus is the present, and Elijah the future. And the three of them are up on this smaller hill, if you like, mountain, and they're talking together. All of these famous people of the Bible, including Jesus, had something miraculous happen to their countenance or presence, and it was something much more than that Hollywood star appeal or star presence. They physically glowed with the presence of God in their very faces. Moses, as we saw in that Old Testament reading, actually wore a veil to protect the people from that powerful glow or presence. There was a veil in the temple in Jerusalem that covered the Ark of the Covenant to protect the people from the glow of God's presence. And we see that if you think of that movie, again, another movie reference, but you think of that movie with the Raiders of the Lost Ark, and as they opened the lid on the Ark and looked inside, there's all that special effects that took place. They're representing something that they believed. They needed to stay away from that power. And they put a veil between themselves and the ark. The use of veils happens many times for this very reason throughout Scripture. Parashet, from the Aramaic parokta, means curtain or screen. And it's a curtain that covers that ark. It contains the Torah scrolls in the synagogue 
And even to this very day, if you go to a synagogue, you'll notice there's a curtain that they put in front because uh, at the front, they don't have a cross. They have a place where they hold the Old Testament scrolls. And there's a curtain that's drawn across in front of that. And as they pull that Torah out, they pull the curtain across and bring it out. And then they walk it all around the congregation. The congregation reach out to kiss it. The presence of God has come from behind the curtain into their midst. We do something similar. Jim did that this morning for us. He carried the Word of God in as we began our service and put it in its place. God's presence was brought in through the Word in that sense. The veil's gone for us for all kinds of other reasons. Veils are often symbolically tied to the veils in the tabernacle in the wilderness because it was a tent covered with veils or walls, curtains, and even in Solomon's temple. And the purpose of these veils was not so much to obscure as to shield the most sacred things from the eyes of sinful men. In Solomon's temple, the veil that was placed between the inner sanctuary and the Holy of Holies, this veil was torn in half when Jesus died on the cross. And if you remember that story, as we read through the, the, the Easter story, the moment Jesus died, that veil tore in two. And this symbolizes, very physically in that sense, symbolizes that now any person, not just the priest, can enter the Holy of Holies. God has removed the separation between us and Himself. Roman brides in ancient Rome wore an intensely flame-colored and full veil. You couldn't even see their face barely at all. It was called a flamium. It apparently was intended to protect the bride from evil spirits on her wedding day. It's something that crosses cultures, this idea of a veil separating the, the precious and the holy from the common. The veil in the temple and on Moses' face protected the people from the glory of God's very presence. It was that same glory that made Jesus glow in the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples didn't need to be protected from it because it was Jesus Himself that made it possible and makes it possible for us to come into the presence of God. So when we're reading from 2 Corinthians, it's talking about that very same thing. The veil that separated the people from God was torn when Jesus died on the cross for us, symbolizing again that we are now able to stand in the very presence of God without fear. This is a wonderful and mighty thing that's been done. But there is another veil that separates us still in some ways from God and from each other. That veil is one that we all wear symbolically, sometimes for good, healthy reasons. But more than often, it really its sole purpose is to keep us at arm's length from one another. Jesus died and conquered death so that we might no longer be separated from the love of God and the very presence of God in our lives. But we often separate ourselves from each other with veils or masks that we wear, keeping us from being who we truly are with one another and with God. Maybe we're afraid to let each other see who we truly are. You know, when we're in our family situations, that's when the veils do tend to come off, don't they? Families argue with each other. Husbands and wives, sometimes the veils come down and dukes come out, so to speak. And we're afraid to be like that with one another. But in love, through Christ, our effort should be to remove those veils. 
You know, sometimes it's a good thing, especially if you had a particular tough time getting to church on a Sunday morning and you're not in the best of moods on arrival. You might be shielding people from a very good thing if you put a veil up, you know, maybe. But Jesus, honestly and truly, seriously, He died so that we could be honest with ourselves, wrinkles and all, before God and one another. And I've said this many, many times about the book of Psalms. If Psalms teaches us nothing else, The entire collection of the book of Psalms teaches us that we should be being honest before God. Because as the phrase I use, there are Psalms that express joy. There are Psalms that express anger at others and God sometimes. There are Psalms that say, today's a great day. There are Psalms that say, I'm afraid today. They're expressing everything in the human condition and emotion that we can experience. And the lesson is, take the veil down and be honest, especially with ourselves and more importantly, with God. Paul says in so many places in his writings to that early church and clearly to us today about this very fact. In Colossians 3, for instance, he says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And then again in James we read, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And sins doesn't mean run around saying all the bad stuff you've done. It's just it's the intention there. Be honest with each other and open with each other and supporting of one another. Ephesians 4, Paul says again, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, For we're all members of one body. What I experience, you experience. And what you experience, I experience. Clearly, it's important in scriptures, especially in the scriptures that are addressing these issues of how we relate to one another in the church and how we should relate to one another in the church. We are to be honest and forbearing of each other. And forbearing is an old word, but it's the best word to pick. We must be veil-less with one another. How else can we be walking in faith and glory and in the presence of the Lord if we don't behave this way with each other? But it's really not an easy thing to do. We do not live in a culture or a world or a time where we can trust one another very easily. Trust comes in a very difficult way. Everybody in this room can, can probably cite an experience where they got, and I'm putting the quotes around, air quotes, burned. I was honest with so-and-so and and I got burned. I'm not doing that again. But that's not what Scripture tells us. It's not what God wants of us. How many times have we confided in someone who claimed to be a Christ follower, a veil-less person, only to be let down by them or a confidence broken? It would seem more than often that when we look around for the countenance that glow, the presence of God on the face of those around us, We see anything but that. We see people who are hiding behind their own veil or mask and won't, or maybe they can't, seem to let us experience the honest and veilless countenance of Christ in their lives. So this is the last Sunday before we start our Lent journey, our Lenten period, our journey to the cross. And that's what Lent's all about. It's not just a setup for Easter. It's a journey of reflection. It's a journey of how can I become less covered in my veil? How can I rip that veil away 
before God first and foremost, before myself and be honest, but before one another. We are being called through Lent as we begin this week and onward to consider how Christ was veilless and how he tore that veil for us that we might stand in the presence of God. I said that the purpose of veils was not so much to obscure as to shield the most sacred things from the eyes. I wonder if sometimes it's to obscure or shield the most secret things from others' eyes. Jesus died so we could not just be saved, but so that we could be, no longer need a veil to obscure the secrets of our hearts. We can come before God and be honest. We can come before God and reveal ourselves for who we really are because God calls us to be honest with God and with each other in our midst. Maybe think of it this way. We're going to be spending an eternity with one another. Why not start today removing the veils that keep us from allowing the Spirit of God to fully work in our lives? We're going to spend eternity together, folks. Why don't we start getting along now? Why don't we start being honest with each other now? For the the kingdom of God is now. The kingdom of God begins this very moment. As we move through Lent, pray that God can help all of us with this task. And as we approach Easter, the joy of Easter, and pray that we can help each other to take those veils down carefully and prevent us from being that true body that's connected to one another, as Paul tells us. This is where we're going over the next number of weeks, the things that we'll be considering through Lent. Amen. As recipients of the abundant life in Christ, we now present our tithes and our offerings to God.